So with your Bibles open, just notice that I've called this this morning, I call to freedom. And in the first, very first verse of Galatians 5.1, it says, for freedom, Christ has called us, right? We are called to freedom. Before we get into that, Stephen King is known as saying, fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. And he's right, but what is that hope placed in? What are we hoping in? What is it that you're hoping that will set you free? Are you hoping that you have some distant ideal that things will work out somehow? Because that kind of feels empty. Are you hoping that you'll win the lottery and then you'll have all the money to fix all your problems? Because as far as I know, more money, more problems. Are you hoping that someday you'll get your big break and make your mark on history? Because that also falls kind of empty because what happens when something comes your way and you're forgotten? Are you hoping that things will work out? What are we hoping in? See, it matters what we place our hope in this morning. And it's in this passage that you can see that where you place your hope, there is one person in whom you can place your hope and you will be truly set free. A quick Google search uh, while I was preparing this, I just typed in, how can we be free? And the first thing that comes up is a page from WikiHow. And so let me give you the five things that this tells you of how you can be free. First, it says, it gives us little, this little question. Do you want to be free and become the truest, most authentic version of yourself? Sounds a little, just to me, it sounds a little wishy-washy already. But number one, they tell us to do. Decide what total freedom means for you. It says only you can actively improve yourself and your station in life, moving towards the freest, most best possible version of you. Okay. Number two, identify what you want from life. Thinking forward to the end of your life, when you're looking back over it, what do you hope to see? A life of pleasure, of accomplishment, of family and success, or a life of endless parties? So do you want to be respected and feared, or do you want to have a, a quiet life of solitude and contemplation? I know there's a few of us that probably want that last one. <laughs> Number three, it says, identify what is keeping you, keeping you from getting what you want. Why aren't you doing what you want right now, today, this moment, this second? What's stopping you? Number four, identify the steps necessary in achieving what you want. It says it will likely take some effort to get what you want to define the ideal environment in which to live your life. And number five, surround yourself with people you admire. As much as we like to think ourselves as perfectly individual snowflakes, and I, I don't think I've ever thought of myself that way, um, it might be because I'm an identical twin, I don't know, but there is actually another snowflake like me in that case. <laughs> but it says, it's important to surround yourself with people who live as you would like to live, not to mimic their behavior, but to learn from it and apply their lessons in your own life. Now, the first thing we're told is to define freedom for ourselves. So I guess what's free for me doesn't have to be what's free for you. And there's an issue with that. 
We're told to figure out what we want from life, what's stopping us, what steps we need to take. And honestly, none of these things are wrong in the right, proper time and place. But none of this will also help me either. When I go home from a long day and I remove that mask of trying to please everyone around me, and I can finally feel take a deep breath and believe, now I can just be myself. I don't have to impress anyone. Or none of this will help me when I'm faced with the burden of the death, of sickness, of addictions to drugs, or even when everything is stripped away from me. None of that is going to help. Our message this morning, as I said, is a call to freedom, true freedom, not only for the Galatians, but for all of us here. As Pastor John Lewis said in his sermon on Galatians 4, we are children of the free woman, not the slave woman. The Apostle Paul used the analogy of Hagar and Sarah to show how the promise of God gave wasn't, wasn't nullified by the giving of the law of Moses. The promise was given first. And we are indeed free in Christ. And as I said, the very first message, sorry, the very first verse in this passage is, For freedom Christ has set us free. Paul has written extensively to the church at this point defending his gospel, trying to get them to stop drifting towards a false gospel, but return to the true gospel, which is hope in Christ alone. And we are now seeing him work out what that freedom in Christ looks like and how it applies to our life. I believe the first thing we can take from our passage this morning, if you want my first point, is a call to freedom in Christ. So we see a call to freedom in Christ. Paul gives a very strong reminder and our works and works out our freedom in Christ. He says, look, I, Paul, he's kind of like when you get serious, he says, look, I'm going to tell you something now. He's saying, look, this is what I, Paul, is, am saying to you. Okay, circumcision or anything else for that matter does not add to Christ or cannot add to your salvation. It's not about how much you give to charity. It's not about how kind you are, how good people say you are. It's not about even how often you come to church. Okay, none of that can save us or add to our salvation. And he's laying down not laying down the law because he's trying to get them. So, <laughs> But he's laying it down for them saying, listen, this is what matters. You cannot add to this. Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. And that makes you free. And just so we're clear this morning, circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. That each male was to be circumcised in their foreskins. We're all adults here. And this imagery was used throughout the Old Testament to show that God was also concerned about also giving us new hearts. We see it used again and again. Take Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, for instance. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So not only was it a physical sign for the people of Israel, but God used that imagery again and again to say, listen, just as there's a physical sign, I'm going to take what's outward and move it inward at some point. And this is where we find ourselves, is that now we can avail also of that inward circumcision of our hearts so that we can be truly free in Christ. Paul's strong language is used here to kind of get his point across. 
Like, en enough's enough. This is what you need to know. That if you trust in circumcision, then you are not trusting in Christ to be sufficient for your salvation. Whether it be circumcision or anything else, if you are trusting in anything else, then you're not trusting in Christ. See, Jesus plus something equals nothing. As Martin Luther said, faith is, is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. It's Christ we trust in and nothing else. Can we really say that we're willing to stake our life on God's grace a thousand times over? Do we trust in it that much? Paul says that we look forward to the righteousness that is coming our way. And we do that through the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to the righteousness that will finally be revealed. Is that we are Christ. The whole point of this is that we are Christ and we are free in him. That burden of trying to earn our salvation, of trying to make ourselves right has been swept away. But not only that, that burden of your past, everything that you bring to Christ has now been made new. Jesus says his yoke is, is light. You take on his yoke, his burden, he has paid the price. Which is why Paul's language is so strong when he says, listen, if you trust in anything else, and if you look at verse 4, he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace because you're trusting in something that's not Jesus. Because what's happening here is that you're trying to stand before the throne of God in judgment. Instead of claiming Christ for your salvation, you're saying, hey, I have this and I have Jesus. And that's not going to do you any good. Commentator Arnold Clinton says, Those who attempt to derive their justification from the law are severed from Christ and cut off from grace. For they are attempting to accomplish their own salvation instead of trusting in the grace and mercy of Christ. To add even one iota of a dot, anything of our own works to Christ means that we're trusting in something outside of him. James says in chapter 2 that you are guilty of the whole law if you break even just one point of it. So likewise, we can assume that to add one point of law to our faith, that we are then taking on the whole burden of the law. In doing so, you're severing yourself from the one that you say you trust in. He died and rose again three days later so that we could be his As we trust story in Christ alone for salvation, we wait for, like I said, the funny revealing of that righteousness. Second Corinthians 5 says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is true hope that leads to freedom. We hope through the Spirit. And as I said, we are sealed in the Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have that deposit in us. We are Christ. 
And he testifies that to us, that we are his. It's a true hope in Christ that he has given us freedom already. And if we trust only in him and repent of our sins, then we're going to be saved. As Paul says in verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. See, he's railed against adding to the gospel, and we see why, but now he doesn't leave room for anyone else to try and say, well, I'm in a higher position because I haven't even thought about doing that. I'm in a good position. I haven't done what these people, or I haven't thought about doing what these people have thought about doing. No, he said, just as much as circumcision doesn't count for it, neither does not being uncircumcised. So not only is it like, I'm not trying to earn my salvation, but trying to think that you're better because you haven't thought that way before. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of the same grace, the same salvation through Christ. And that faith that we have in Jesus is shown through our love. As Paul says, your faith working itself out through love. Our faith is not perfected by love. And that our good works add anything to our faith. Our faith is instead shown through our love, working itself out as proof to the world. This is what counts. A true saving faith in Christ alone. And resting in that and having peace in that. Now we'll see more about this working out itself in love at the end of the sermon, at the end of this passage. Paul then switches in our passage to a, from his call to freedom to a personal call to the Galatians and a strong rebuke of the Judaizers for what they've been doing. Starting in verse 7, he asked the Galatians who caused them to stumble, who, or who cut you off, who got in your way. You were doing so good. The believers are doing so well and something has now caused them to strip, sorry, to trip. Something has gotten in their way. Now, we have a, popular, a lot of popular races here in the city, in this area. Now, we've got Telly Tam, which I've never watched. I wouldn't say I would do it for fun. Um, I don't know how you can run for fun, but... <laughs> but I have volunteered at the Cape to Cabot race. Now, the Cape to Cabot race is a 20-kilometer race from Cape Spear to Cabot Tower. I'm sorry, that sounds insane. Like... <laughs> I have volunteered at that. So I was just behind the Marriott on Duckworth Street at a water station there. And we saw a lot of runners coming through. A lot of dedicated ones who were hard and first and, you know, just their, their mind was set. And, you know, they had really prepared for this. And then we saw a lot of other runners who were really gassed by the end of it. Walking, barely making it through. And it's at that point... I feel like we could have probably persuaded some of them to stop running. And the one thing we were told not to say to these people was, you're almost there. One, because if you think about it, if I'm on Duckworth Street, or behind there, sorry, and you've got to go to Cabot Tower, what's next? Signal Hill. <laughs> so I would not be happy if someone was telling me I'm almost there, and then I've got to see this massive hill in front of me. So it would have been very easy to persuade these people not to go any further. Just like what Paul says, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Now, a little yeast spreads quickly. A little doubt, a little misinformation can spread through a group very quickly. And if we wanted to, we could have done some very easy persuasions to stop some of these people from running the race and finishing well. Which is why we must know what we believe, but also why we believe it. We need to know why we believe what we believe, not just take you know, things at face value, not just take things for granted, but look for yourself. Okay, I know what I believe as a Christian, but why do I believe it? Dig into it. Know for yourself. And so point number two this morning is in verses 7 to 12. is a call from destruction. So we have a call to freedom in Christ. And then we see a call from destruction. See, towards the Galatians, Paul seems more like a concerned father for a child who's gone down the wrong path and needs correction. In verse 10, we see that again, as he did in chapter 4, that he expects the Galatians to have a proper view and truly be saved. If you remember back when I preached in chapter 4, we see that the Galatians were called brothers, and they were described as being known by God. So Paul is referring to them as Christians, and he believes that they'll come away from that wrong path and be on the right path. Paul has full confidence that the church will come back to a true faith, but they need to be called back from that dangerous path, kind of like calling a child back. It's also like, for example, if we're still in the process of potty training our son, um, and I would love for him to have it, but he doesn't. But imagine for a second, you have a child who's being potty trained, and they finally get it. They finally, yep, I'm ready for this. I don't want a diaper. This is much better. I don't want a diaper of stuff hanging off of me. This is so much better. And they start doing great. But then that child goes to the playground, and another child who's still in a diaper says, no, this is way better. Like, I, get, I get to keep playing. No one interrupts me from playing. I can just keep going and going. This is so much better. And you're laughing because it sounds ridiculous. You know, your child comes back and they start wearing diapers, and you just say, what happened? You were doing so well. This is essentially what's happening. It's that the Galatians are thinking, you know what? We, we've come to faith in Christ, but then they start to think, and they become convinced Maybe we need to add something else to this to somehow get more of Jesus, to somehow have a better faith. And Paul looks at him, what happened? You were doing so well because Jesus is the only way to the Father. For us, it's not about how many prayers we say. In Newfoundland, it's not about not drinking, not smoking, not gambling, not dancing which typically if someone is saved, that's what you say that you're not doing. It's not about any of that. It's about Christ and Christ alone. And we must stand for truth in love so that we would not end up on the path that leads to destruction because it can happen. Even now we have churches in our city, in the area that are closing their doors. And if our faith is genuine, Scripture is clear that you're not going to just lose your salvation. But there are still warnings about shipwrecking your faith and testing it to be sure, which we need to be doing. 
And remember, those tests, as I've said before in my last sermon on Galatians 4, were meant to lead us to a resounding, yes, I am saved in Christ. The Galatians were on a dangerous path that trusted in the flesh and not grace. And Paul does not doubt that they are saved, but writes to call them back to truth and was confident that they would come back to that truth. As we move through the text, we see Paul says that whoever has led them astray will receive a due penalty. Now, it's not that Paul doesn't know who's spreading this falsehood. It's not that he doesn't know who's causing the issue, but there's no reason for him here to call it personally. The Galatians know who he's talking about. He doesn't have to make a personal call tearing someone down. And he knows that vengeance is the Lord. The Lord is going to take care of this. They will receive a due penalty. But then going from verse 11 to 12, we see some of the strongest language Paul has ever used. You see, it's likely that the group of, the group of Judaizers were either saying that Paul used to preach circumcision when he was a zealous Jew, or that he still has continued some form of circumcision. Which is why Paul says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? So you take that, that they're slandering Paul, saying he's teaching what he's not, and you go back to Galatians 1, where Paul says, a curse beyond you if you preach any gospel that is not the true gospel. And we can see and understand why Paul is so upset here, why he uses such strong language. Because he says, he says here that basically they should just cut a body part off of them. Just, just think about it. Like, I don't want us to just breeze past this. He's very serious here. He says, listen, if you're going to trust in the flesh, why not go all the way and see how good that does you? Because it's not about the flesh. It's not about works. It's not about adding to the gospel. Paul's view of circ- circumcision, as Richard Longnecker says in his commentary, is that when it's done for society, or so, sorry, societal or physical reasons, is acceptable. But when done either to gain acceptance before God or to achieve a more acceptable lifestyle, simply becomes bodily mutilation. At that point, you're just mutilating your body if you think it's going to make you better before God. It's the same as believing, again, a good person goes to heaven without Christ. Same as believing that if you keep going to church, that makes you right in God's eyes. Or that giving large sums of money to charity could possibly give you a chance before the throne of God outside of Christ. We are called to freedom. And we don't have to trudge through the muck of life trying to earn our way into heaven. Our third call this morning comes from the end of the passage, 13 to 15. This is a call to freedom in service. If you notice, our passage, in five, so starting in 5.13, it echoes 5.1. 5.13 says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So he's got some bookends here from what he's doing. And what, what Paul is looking at is he's addressed legalism, he's addressed the idea of adding to your faith, but now he's going to begin, and you hear more about this next week when you hear from the fruits of the Spirit from our, our intern, Matthew Quick, but he's beginning to look at now you can't have a license to sin, do whatever you want. 
The idea of, you know, if someone tries to stop you, you can't be doing it. Oh, no, I've got a license for that. I can do that. You can't just pull out this license of grace and think you can do whatever you want. You see, just as James says in 2.18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul writes that we're not to use our freedom for our flesh to do whatever we want, but to serve one another through love. This is true freedom. This is true love. We are free from slavery and are now able to serve and love because of our faith in Christ. As John Brown, a Puritan of the 18th century, said, The madman who has mistaken his tattered garments for the flowing roads of majesty and his manacles for golden bracelets studded with jewels has not erred so widely as the man who has mistaken carnal license for Christian liberty. See, we move from slavery to service. Freedom from slavery to being freedom, free to serve our brothers and sisters. And a simple illustration of this is how we've been able to come alongside a couple. If you've seen the, uh, the post in the Facebook group, a couple that used to live downtown, Ashley and Morris, their house caught on fire. They lost, where they, they lost their house. It's just behind our street. We've been able to come alongside of them and serve our brothers and sisters. Not because it makes us feel good. Not even because it's the right thing to do. Because it's what God would have us do. So we can work out our faith in love. But we also need to be aware of ways that we are trying to use our freedom as an excuse to sin. For instance, maybe have you ever drank around someone who struggles with alcoholism? Or have you thought that your freedom trumps someone else's? Even though their conscience may say that what you're doing is wrong? See, freedom in Christ is not about what I want. It's not about putting my freedoms, what my freedoms are. Because the only freedom I have has been granted to me in Christ. It was never mine anyways. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, 1 to 3, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which means we think of others as above ourselves. Which means it's not about what I want, what I deserve, when's it my turn. It's not about that. We come together in service, working out our faith and love for each other. And again, James 1.25 says, But the one who looks to the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, faith is the root, and love is the fruit. Ronald Fung says in his commentary, In other words, the believer who is free from the law is at the same time one who fulfills the law, 
Only the way he fulfills the law is not by observing the rules and regulations of an external code, but by the new way of love which is generated within the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the law has been fulfilled in Christ, and now that is evident in how Christians are called to love. Not through our own merit or effort, but through faith and freedom that comes through Christ alone and the change he has made in us, making us new creations. It's walking in the spirit, as you'll hear about next week. Which means we don't bite and devour each other, as Paul says. But instead, we are called to stand firm in and live out our freedom and love. As it says in verse 1, stand firm. We're called to stand firm in our freedom and live out our freedom in love. Scripture is our final authority. Be aware of what you're being taught. Read this passage yourself and hold myself accountable. Am I teaching this right? Is my application right? Don't take things for granted. Scripture is the authority. To add to the gospel is to remove its offense, as Paul says. Timothy George says, the gospel of Christ versus a different gospel. Faith versus works. Grace versus merit. Promise versus law. Hagar, Ishmael, the present Jerusalem versus Sarah, Isaac, the heavenly Jerusalem. The spirit versus flesh. Freedom versus bondage. This is the amazing truth of our faith. And let me say that again. It's faith, not works. Grace, not merit. Promise, not law. Isaac, not, not Ishmael. Spirit, not flesh. Freedom, not bondage. This is the hope that we have. It's all about the cross and what has been accomplished for us. And the offense is that we can't do this ourselves. We have to admit that we can't do this. We can't save ourselves. But now we're called to live out this freedom and love to those around us. So this morning, if you don't believe, then I ask that you would trust in the message of the cross. Trust in what Christ has accomplished and know true freedom. And if you do know Christ, I ask that we would stand firm in and live out that freedom in service through love. We can be an example to this city. Jasmine just shared a story with me about how this past week, how she came across someone who had heard about Calvary and Maui Mission. They had been down by the regatta when we were doing our Cuban band thing. And they recognized her. They recognized where they were from. Listen, God is moving slowly, bit by bit, in our city. And if God would continue to bless us, then let us not think we alone have a monopoly on freedom or the truth. Because that alone is Christ. Don't be content with the weight of slavery when you have the freedom to serve and show the city Jesus. You know, Stephen King was right. Fear indeed can keep you prisoner. But this is where he got it wrong. Because only hope in Jesus can set you free. Let me pray this morning. 
Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach to my brothers and sisters. Lord, may you apply this truth to each of our hearts. May you lead us by your spirit, O Lord, to know that we are free. We are free, O God, to trust you, to bring our burdens, our past, our sins to you, that we don't have to hide. Lord, that you have paid the price for us. Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father as our priest, and you have sat down. There are no more sacrifices to give. You did it once for all. Lord, may you keep us on the right track following you. And would you indeed help us, O Lord, to serve each other, working our faith out in love for each other and for your glory ultimately in this city, O God. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.